Alrighty, so if you'd start opening in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, we're still in Acts 20, starting in verse 25, going through to 28. And then just to recap, as we walk through this, the Apostle Paul has been really, uh, he's been uh, clarifying uh, his ministry purposes. He's been really, you know, clearing, clearing the air, so to speak, as there have been there's been dissension everywhere he's gone. There has been uh, ridicule and persecution against him and his ministry. And so he has these Ephesian elders with him. He's saying, for, saying farewell, and he's clearing the air, so to speak. He's clearing his name. This is kind of where we pick, off, pick, pick up. And so 25 through 27, he, he's, he's really just ending his, his vindication, if you will. He's ending his a defense of his ministry, and then in 28, he, he shifts and transitions into talking about the church. And so we're going we're gonna to work our way through these four verses today, So starting in verse 25. This is the word of the living God. Now behold, I know that all of you among, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Alrighty, so like I said, we kind of need to set the context of where we where we are by looking at where we have been as we've been working ex- exegetically through this chapter and through the whole book of Acts. So you should be very well acquainted with Paul and his ministry uh, endeavors, his ministry travels. So at the end of this study, we're going to get a map of the Mediterranean, and I want you guys to just pinpoint every single stop of Paul. It seems pretty reasonable after we've been here for so long. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you do that. Um, I really do need to get the map back up here. How, was that helpful for anybody, or was it just for me? Because maybe I'm just a big geography nerd. Okay, one person. That's great. Okay, four people. That's, that's good. Um, all righty. So we last left Paul, and he is, he's at port. He, he's getting ready to set sail for Jerusalem. He wants to try to get there by the day of Pentecost. Again, we, we noted that Paul is an ethnic Jew, really a Jew of Jews by his own words. That, that is that he set out to keep the law of God, to, 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 again, walk according to the customs of the Jews. And so even as a new convert in Christ at the beginning of the church, the foundation of the church in the apostolic age, Paul is still, again, not in, and not in a way that is uh, ideal, uh, idolatrous. He's still holding to those traditions in one sense. So he wants to get back to Pente- for Pentecost in Jerusalem, again, to as a way of showing reverence and honor to the Lord. Just as we noted before in chapter 19, he was seeking to get back to Jerusalem on a different account because he had made a vow and he had cut his hair, again, according to Jewish customs. This is not uh, idolatrous. This is not uh, counter-Christian. This was just Paul, again, as a Jewish man, uh, showing his devotion to God. And so Paul calls for the Ephesian elders. He's not leaving from Ephesus, but he calls for, for the Ephesian elders, the, the elders of that specific church in Ephesus, to come to him to say farewell. And so Ephesus is about 40 miles from where Paul's at. 
And it's estimated that it would have taken about three or four days for these elders to come to meet Paul at the point of which when Paul had called them. So we pick up in this section, and last week I noted in, through verses 20, well, in verse 24 where we covered several different points, and so I'm going to walk through those real quick as we just recap. So I noted Paul, Paul's self-denial. Paul comes out in the beginning of verse 24 and saying, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in ministry. And we noted that the theme of self-denial is riddled throughout Scripture, that self-denial is a prerequisite to serving God. You cannot serve God from a selfish, self-serving heart. Men and women naturally, apart from Christ, seek to steal God's glory and ascribe it to themselves. This is not what we learn from Scripture. This is not what we learn from Christ. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We kind of got drilled with that last week with Rocky, that exhortation, follow me. Follow me, Jesus says. Do you follow Christ? Are you actively seeking to honor him in all things, to follow after his example? Again, lest you think this principle is somehow just a New Testament idea, the principle of self-denial, in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all, th- in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We must deny ourselves and follow Christ fully. Just as Rocky mentioned last week, again, the, follow Jesus, the call to follow Jesus is an imperative. That is to say that we must do this. We must submit our lives to him. But how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. For those of you who know Christ and have a relationship with Christ and walk with him, how sweet it is to trust in him. Matthew 16, again, 25, it says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then next, we we looked at Paul's self-denial. We'll look at Paul's stewardship of the ministry. We looked at that last week. He's a steward of the ministry given to him by Christ himself. This race he is running has been given to him by the Lord. It's not Paul's ministry. It never was Paul's ministry. Those that serve God are merely stewards of what he graciously gives to us. Christ is the head of the church, and we, as the members of the body, do not exercise ownership or entitlement. And then lastly, as we wrap up our review, we considered the seriousness of the gospel message. Paul says that he testified solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And again, the gospel message is serious. It's not a motivational message you tear off of your grandma's calendar, guys. It is serious. The gospel is the reality of our total and utter hopelessness and faithlessness and God's great mercy and love toward those hopeless, faithless people. Not on the basis of works we have done obtaining salvation, but on the basis of the righteousness of the blood of Christ the perfect life lived by Jesus Christ, the God-man. And that leads us to our last point. In that, in that recap, 
We saw that the gospel is extremely serious. Again, what's at stake? We even, we even covered that text in Matthew of Lazarus and, and the rich man, again, in Abraham's bosom, the seriousness of that. Lazarus asking for a, 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 a dip of water on the finger of Lazarus just to, just to cool his tongue from, from the torment of hell and what awaits unbelievers. It is a serious message. It's solemn. But lastly, we saw this gospel is a gracious gospel. It is the gospel of the, of the grace of God. The, real, the reality, again, that, that those who don't love and honor God will rightly be punished in hell, but the, but the gospel is weighty and gracious. It is weighty in value because of the value of the blood that was spilled on our behalf. If you are in Christ this morning, you were bought with a price. Don't ever forget that. Again, Romans 5, 6 through 9 says, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him that is Christ. Is this not good news? If you are in Christ, know that God looks upon you with the very love that he looks upon his son. What a mystery that is. What grace we have been given in Christ and only in Christ. And so now that leads us into our, our verse for today, our, our verses for today, the, the portion of text we're covering. So we're going to look at Paul's, the first point, we're going to look at Paul's clarity of conscience in verse 25 through 26. Paul's clarity of conscience. As we recap the, the, the passage, it says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I, did, that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Again, Paul is clearing his conscience. He's, he's coming out and saying that I, I, I have brought the whole counsel to you. I have not withheld anything from you. That these, again, these slanderers, these people that were going around bashing Paul's ministry, they are deceitful. And again, they are, they are lying in that, in, in, in the things they are saying about Paul. And so today, our thesis statement, or what we'll learn today, is the church is to be deeply saturated in the Word of God in order that she may guard herself against the schemes of the devil, the wickedness of the world, and the sinfulness of the flesh. The church is to be deeply saturated in the word of God in order that she may guard herself against the schemes of the devil, the wickedness of the world, and the sinfulness of the flesh. In short, the church of Christ is precious to him. Pursue purity. We must pursue purity. So in these first few verses, again, Paul's clearing his name. He's reminding these men what he's about, what his ministry is about. And really, what Paul is ultimately about is the advancement of the gospel. Again, being commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself, being the last apostle, the last one commissioned to go out to the early church and to uh, hold that authority. Again, we, we recognize that as an apostle, he was granted uh, gifts Again, empowerment through the Holy Spirit to work miraculous gifts um, and prophecy. Those gifts have now ceased. Again, Paul being the last apostle. And so, again, 
his anthem, Christ, uh, Paul's anthem was that Christ has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now is the time to repent and believe. And so if you have truly faithfully done that, if you have, if you have not withheld the counsel of God, you have, you have come forward with the truth of the gospel to those around you, there's a clarity of conscience that comes when we are faithful as believers to present that message to those around us. Again, we just sat under Rocky's teaching last week. What a beautiful sermon it was on Sunday, really just explaining the Great Commission and how it applies to the life of the individual believer, but also how it it applies to the life of the church corporately. And guys, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. Rocky challenged us by asking, if we believe that God has an intentional plan for your life, and of course, you know, we all, you know, kind of people murmuring, affirming, yes, I believe that God's intentional. Then he said, do you believe that God has an intentional, intentional plan for your life every day? And of course, everyone, yeah, those are softball answers. He's getting ready to smash us. This, we understand what's coming. And then he asked us again, do you truly believe that? And do you take that to heart, that God is intentional every day? And, and viewing those moments that the Lord has given us to witness to people to share the gospel, those moments as divine appointments in our lives each day. Again, those interactions that the Lord prompts for you for the promotion of the gospel verbally. The gospel message needs to be communicated verbally. I don't know how many people I've ever talked to or, or how many people you may have talked to that say, well, you know, I don't really do evangelism. That's not really my gifting or anything. I just, I just try to live the gospel. Anybody ever heard that? Just, just show of hands real quick. Yeah, that, that sometimes, again, you, you, you might have someone who has a misunderstanding of maybe practice or theology, and maybe they don't mean exactly what it sounds like they're saying. But guys, that's a really bad idea. It's a really bad idea. idea. Rocky said to the men's conference, well, actually, he probably said it on Sunday morning. He probably said it both times. But if, if we don't share the gospel verbally, or if you just, if you just live the gospel to people around you, they're all going to hell. Guys, they're all going to hell. We can't, we can't communicate the truth of the gospel by living it. It needs to be communicated verbally. Of course, we as believers, with the fruit of the Spirit, we should be, again, displaying the love of God. We should be displaying His character, His nature as we live and interact with those around us. That's a given. We, we are called to do that. We're commanded to do that. But guys, we are also commanded to verbally share the truth of the gospel. In Romans 10, 14, it says, how then, will they, how then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And by the way, Paul is not saying that only seminary-trained, highly theological pastors, deacons, elders are the only ones that can do this when he says the word, how will they not, well, preacher, how will they hear without a preacher? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. This idea of preacher is in the context of being a herald of God, someone proclaiming the good news. We are all called to do this. This exhortation is not for just pastors and preachers in that sense. Anyone who has been redeemed by Christ and walks according to God's word. That's all of us. That's who he's talking to. And Paul had a clarity of conscience because he was busy with the work of evangelism. He, would, he was faithfully training these men 
these Ephesian elders in the scriptures to do the work of ministry. Paul wasn't innocent of the blood of all men because he was perfect. But to the best of his ability, he was faithful to preach the gospel of God. And so he stands before these men and he says, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not withhold anything, really. I was faithful to bring the word to bear. I was faithful to bring the whole counsel of God to bear. And if you're in Christ, you probably know the feeling when you get extended time with an unbeliever around you, maybe in a work setting, maybe in a school setting, maybe, maybe you're out shopping for groceries. You get an extended period of time with an unbeliever and you start to hear your conscience in the back of your mind saying you, you need to be working towards a gospel presentation. You need to be working toward the, these are those divine appointments. And so when you have that person and then you, we all, we all probably know the feeling, if you're in Christ, you probably know the feeling of when you fail to do that, when you're not faithful in that moment. And that person walks away. This isn't a pleasant feeling. I've done it. When you know that really this is, you, this is the prime opportunity and your conscience is bearing witness and you ignore it. Guys, that person is walking away from that encounter really to their eternal damnation and, and, and ultimately you are saying that you are not, you're, you're stepping aside and you're just saying, you know, here's the door, here, here's the path. You're not in, in any way stopping them or trying to persuade them otherwise. I get it's awkward. Guys, trust me, I get it's awkward. I, it's not the most, it's not the easiest thing in the world. As Pastor Chris was even sharing this morning, if you were in first service, just kind of the painstaking awkwardness that can, can be evangelism. Even, even in that context when he was speaking about the, the, the conversation was going well and he was talking and they were engaging and seemed to be talking to a believer. Guys, but we must do this. There's a reason we press on in it. It's not really enjoyable in that sense. But guys, these people are going to hell. And the Apostle, the apostle Paul understands that. He understood that. These people are walking to eternal damnation. Hear me carefully. Men and women who have not bent the knee to Christ in repentance and faith are fully deserving of the wrath of God. So when we fail to testify of the gospel to them, you are not condemning them in the sense that you are enabling them down that road, but in your motivation for evangelism. But your motivation for evangelism should be the reality that apart from the grace of God, you are just as deserving of that wrath. That you are them in that sense. That, that you have done nothing to deserve your salvation and that you have pity on them. That you recognize, again, that they are, they are headed down the path that you were headed down. Again, even the heart of Paul in his... I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact place of this, this text, but he's talking about his kinsmen, his, his, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. He's saying, if I could, I would literally cut myself off from salvation. I, I would forfeit my salvation if it meant salvation for the, for the Jewish people, for my brothers and sisters. I would give them my place, so to speak. Might we have that heart as well that, again, I'm sure Paul was thinking particularly of people in that instance, but by the text it seems to be indicating he's speaking of all Jewish people, not people he just knows. And guys, we need to have this mercy and this 
the grace of God to, to bring the word to bear to these people in our daily lives that we interact with. So we need to have a clarity of conscience when it comes to evangelism and actually believe the words of Christ and take them to heart when he says, go, for, go, for, go forth and make disciples of all nations. You need to be willing to obey the words of Christ. Alrighty, so we drop down to verse 28. We're going to be really spending the rest of our time here in commentaries. They kind of break up Paul's address to the Ephesian elders into one, uh, three parts. We finished, we just finished part two, so to speak, in that sense. Uh, really, he's, he's, he's clear, he has the clarity of his conscience. Now we're working into verse 28, which is jam-packed here. And so we're going to look at Paul, the sheepdog. Paul, the sheepdog. So it says in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So again, we need to understand who Paul is talking to in this sense. We understand, for those of you who have done hermeneutics with us, uh, for those of you who understand how we interpret Scripture, uh, this, this book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28 it was not written to Tyler Rathman in 2024. So this, this is not a letter addressed to Tyler or to any of you, so to speak. It was meant for specific individuals with specific exhortations in those specific contexts. And we can draw principles always. We are commanded to. It is the Word of God that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We draw principles and applications to our lives. But we best understand this text when we understand who it's, who's being exhorted and why they're being exhorted. So again, who, who, is, who is, I'll turn it to you guys. You can answer this. Who is Paul addressing when he says, be on guard? Who's he addressing? It's in the text. So who's he talking to? He's been talking to these people the whole time. I've mentioned it multiple times. This is a softball answer. I'm just, what is it? No, not the Roman church. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. I, I, saw, I saw you guys. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. We mentioned it before. And so I think it would be best to take some time to understand what an elder is. What is an elder? What is an overseer? Because, again, we, we, we've been, we've, he's been exhorting these men. We know that they are leaders in the church. But all right, so we're going to walk through the specific roles and responsibilities of a New Testament elder of the church. So, if you want to walk through with me, we're going to kind of be loosely going through 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3. But first, an elder is a man. An elder is a man. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. All right, so... An elder is a man. They are, they are charged with the care of a local congregation, a local body of Christ. There needs to be a plurality of elders, that is multiple men exercising authority, exercising care and oversight over a church. And this is, this is really, as we understand this, this is God's structure for the church. This is His structure for leadership in the church, and we should delight in this because it is good 
and rights. And it gives us, again, it gives us a better understanding and a better appreciation of our elders and those who oversee us as we'll, as we'll really just begin to unpack in this. So firstly, we see an elder must be above reproach, it says in the text. An elder must be above reproach. That is to say that their reputation is one of moral purity. Their reputation of, is of moral purity, that they, these men are living righteously, and that is visible to those who are around them. That is to say that if they were accused of something, someone could say, absolutely not. I know that person. That man lives righteously. And it would be like so far-fetched to say that, that they would be accused of something because they are above reproach in that sense. That, they, that, that here's the standard of righteousness that they, in one sense, they are ascribing to a, a higher standard as they are in authority. And, and God calls them to a higher standard of purity in that sense. That we, we are all called to be Again, perfect and holy as God is holy, but the standards and responsibility of the office of elder is a higher standard. Again, and, and if they don't, if elders aren't holding to that standard, then they will be removed. So an elder must be above reproach. An elder must be temperate. An elder must be temperate. This word temperate literally means wineless or unmixed with wine. It's really just trying to convey that an elder must be watchful, alert, clear-minded, vigilant, and sober in all things. All right, this is from the XL Ministries website. It says, to be temperate shows that the church leader had to be free from rash actions. The word describes self-control with regard to that of intoxicants. But it can also be used to describe a mental self-control that rules out all forms of excess. Paul dealt with this use in verse 3, but he's not covering the same subject here. Paul's term he's referring to is someone who is sober and has a balanced spirit. So nextly, an elder must be prudent. An elder must be prudent. The spiritual leader in the church must not be ruled by his emotions or easily be stirred up. He is responsible to handle spiritual affair, the spiritual affairs of the church with wisdom and consistency. Prudence is really just having a clear mind, being level-headed to be able to work through difficult difficult situations. Nextly, an elder, next, an elder must be respectable. That is to be proper, honorable, appropriate in all things. They must be respectable. Again, they're not, they're not known for just excessive silliness or just being goofy. Not, not that that's wrong in any way, but they have a seriousness about them. They are, they are respectable. They are, they are of high regard and repute. An elder must be hospitable. Again, from Excel Ministries, hospitality is a way for elders to get to know those who are in their new, that are new in their congregation. It is also a way for new people to see the life and testimony of their church elders. This is a reminder that biblical leadership never must be isolated, must never be isolated to meetings that are held behind closed doors. Elders are fully engaged in the lives of the believers they serve. They must be fully engaged. An elder must be able to teach being able to rightly divide the word of truth, 2 Timothy 15 says. In Titus 1.9, Paul also says that an elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and reprove those who contradict. Teaching is the primary way in which elders really shepherd the flock of God. Again, holding fast to God's word, an elder must be able to lead and guard the flock from, according to Scripture. Again, we, we, we heard this from Rocky on the, in the men's conference. Uh, Christ talked about the church twice 
in the Gospels. And in both contexts, the first context, he was talking about external forces seeking to come inside the church, speaking more to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, seeking to bring in false teaching and, and, and persecution against the church. And then secondly, he was talking about church, church discipline, that inside, within the body of Christ, those who would seek to destroy uh, the church. And again, this, this is only, you only guard the flock according to sound doctrine, according to the word of God. And these men are, must be able to teach, must be able to rightly divide the word of God. All right. An elder must be not addicted to wine. Again, this is very practical. An elder must not be drunk or drink in excess. We got that. That's clear. And then as we, as we kind of wrap up here, an elder must be gentle. Again, being, being soft and, and, and gentle and lowly in that sense. An elder must be free from the love of money. That is to say, not, again, loving or desiring money or even material things. So now we move on. Again, James 3.1 says, again, the ser- of the seriousness of the office of elder, he says, let not many of you become teachers. And in here he's speaking of overseers and elders, those who teach in the church. Let, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Again, saying that the, the bar is set extremely high for elders, that the church of God is precious to Christ, and those who are charged with shepherding the flock must be above reproach in all things. Being an elder isn't just a fancy title. It isn't just something that you put on your resume to appear impressive. Being an elder of the church of God is the most serious and important endeavor anyone could ever ascribe to. Now that we understand a little more deeply the, the, the roles of an elder, let's examine how the Apostle Paul is encouraging this group of elders here as we walk through verse 28. So first, the elder's self-preservation. The elder's self-preservation. Paul exhorts these elders first to be on guard for themselves. And how does one guard themselves? Again, they hold fast to the Word. And we walk according to the Word. He has given us His Spirit that according to that word, we might be convicted and he might prompt us according to his will that we might do what is right and good in the eyes of God. And he's given us his church. That we might encourage one another, press into each other's lives in accountability, in love, that we might look like Christ and have that desire for those sitting next to us. In order for a man to be used of God to shepherd the church of Christ, he must guard himself by these means which the Lord has freely bestowed upon us. An elder must remain pure in his walk with Christ if he is to properly guard the flock. In Titus 1, Paul says, For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's, su- God's steward, not self-willed or quick-tempered. Guys, this is Christ's church. This is Christ's church. Again, Paul, Paul, <laughs> Rocky mentioned it's not Chris's church, it's not the elder's church, this is Christ's church church. And the idea of stewardship is that it is not yours. Again, you don't have possession over the church. You're, 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 it is not yours to, to claim or to exercise any type of a uh, you know, claim over. This is Christ's church, and the elders must steward it for him. Again, Christ purchased this church with his blood, and we'll see that later in the text. Elders are stewards of the bride of Christ. And if you know how much Christ love his, loves his bride, then you should know how serious the role of elder is in the church. So elders must be on guard for themselves. 
that leads to the next point. Elders must selflessly safeguard the flock. <clears throat> Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Christ is zealous for the purity of his church. We are reading again that the elders must be zealous for this purity and lest you think that you can just kick your feet up and say, well, you know, he's talking about elder qualifications and that's not really applying to me and I'm only, you know, 13 years old. No, we all must be zealous for the purity of Christ's church. Every believer must be passionate for purity. Again, or... Even if you were a young lady this morning and you're saying, well, he's talking about the office of elder and I'm a woman and I, I can't you know, hold that office, so again, I'm just going kick to my, kick my feet up and not really listen. Guys, we, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have so many, an, an abundance of, uh, of, of ladies in this church that are extremely passionate about the church and extremely passionate about leading in the church within the roles that the Lord has given them within the women's ministries, within the children's ministries. I don't know if you've seen them, but again, just if you're involved in the women's ministries in any way, you will know what I'm talking about. You know, theologically, I think Rachel Odell could go punch for punch with Ron. I mean, they give each other a good, they're well matched. They go pound for pound, guys. I mean, if you are a, a woman here this morning... You are not allowed in that sense. You are not given to the role of elder or to hold authority over a man. But these, these principles, these exhortations are just as much for you as they are for the men in this room. They are just as much for you. Young ladies, I encourage you in a few years, once you've turned 18, to sign up for the, the Ladies Bible Institute. It's, 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 it's literally the women's version of the Shepherd's Institute. And I think it's actually a little tougher, to be honest, from what I hear, um, you know, by, by Chris's own admission, guys. Women must likewise be saturated in the word of God, able to refute error and uphold the truth. God has established roles within the church and within creation that men and women should walk in them. And I'm not going to beat you over the head with this, because Chris is already doing that on Wednesday nights with biblical manhood and womanhood. Guys, we must delight in what the Lord has established. In verse Timothy 3, we keep, if you keep reading, he goes from the, talking about the qualifications of elders, then into deacons, and then, kind of as a side note, to catch, to, to catch you young ladies, as the Apostle Paul puts in there, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So he's basically saying, if you think you're off the hook because you're a man, you're not. You must be faithful in all things, to walk according to the word of God, to live pure, holy lives, just like everybody else. And so he's listing these qualifications for leadership in the church, and he's saying women must likewise display these principles and display these qualifications. Again, overseers guard the flock. And those men who are called to this task love and delight, and they must love and delight in their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, the psalmist writes. 
And an elder's motivation to shepherd the church must first come from a desire to serve and honor Christ. But then secondly, the, motiva- the motivation must come from, for a lo- from the love for the sheep. Guys, we need, we need to value and really recognize what the Lord has given us in our elders and those who guard the flock. They guard your souls, guys. In Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith, obey your leaders, and submit to them for, here's, here's the kicker right here, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Guys, your elders, those men who are listed on the back of the bulletin, they are accountable for your spiritual health and for, their, for your souls. And I know personally that they walk through every Monday night, they walk through and spend countless hours praying for you through the church directory praying for your souls, praying for your salvation, praying for your holiness. Guys, this is not a light thing. It's not a a small thing to be an elder of the church of God. It is the highest calling. Guys, this this is something we need to grasp. These elders love you because they love Christ and they want to see you walking with him. So as we wrap up, we'll see the elder's divine appointment. The elder's divine appointment. It says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, God sovereignly has established and commissioned these elders of specific churches by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not to say that each individual elder is granted some divine right to rule in that sense. Elders must prove themselves qualified by keeping according to the commandments of God and the guidelines of the office of elder found in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and other places. We must submit to these elders as they lead and as they guide the church according to the word of God. And lastly, the elders' high calling, shepherd the church of God among you, which he purchased with his own blood. Guys, the value of the church of Christ cannot be overstated because of the value of the blood of Christ which purchased her. Guys, the blood of Christ is infinitely value, valuable. Well, again, one sin of Adam plunged the entire human race into death and judgment, deserving the wrath of God. The death of one man, that is the God-man Christ Jesus is valuable enough to save billions, billions in Christ. The blood of Christ purchased the church. Second Peter 3, 17 through 18, it says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by error of undisciplined men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and into the day of eternity. Amen. So how do you help your elders in this? Again, they keep watch over you. They, they guard themselves. They guard the flock because of the value of the church, because Christ loves the church, because Christ 
is zealous for the purity of the church, how do you help your elders? Will you be pure and be zealous for the purity of the church in your life? Press into communion. Press into fellowship within the church. Come alongside other believers who love God and love Christ and, and, and walk with them. Learn from them. Help draw them back if they need to be. Be drawn back yourself and be able to receive correction if you are not walking according to the Spirit. In that sense, if you are sinning actively and these people come alongside you and says, I don't think this is right what you're doing. Because we must be willing to be zealous for the purity of Christ's church. That's how we help our elders. That's how we, that's how we remain pure. That's how we you know, come to the end and, and we receive accommodation from the Lord Jesus because we were faithful with what he has given us. Again, reflecting on the grace that he has given us in salvation. Again, empowered by the Holy Spirit because we can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit that is, that is worth anything, guys. We, we are unable to satisfy God or to live righteously only by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So, as we close, a few questions for you as we wrap up. Do you have a clarity of conscience regarding evangelism? Do you have a clarity of conscience regarding evangelism and your social interactions? Am I encouraging my friends with the truth of God's word and seeking to love them and build them up in the church? Am I faithful to share the gospel message verbally with those around me who are headed for wrath and judgment? Secondly, are you zealous for the purity of the church of Christ? Are you zealous like Christ is zealous for his church? Are you personally seeking to be disciplined in all things and live according to God's word? And lastly, do you value your elders? Do you recognize that they, they oversee you, they, 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 they are accountable for your souls, that they, that they are actively praying for your spiritual health and well-being? Do you recognize, again, that they've been divinely appointed to guard the flock, to guard you? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. Lord, we are so incredibly amazed at what you've done in salvation for us to draw us to yourself, Lord. And Lord, as we study this text and as we've listened from Rocky and others and Chris and Rob and just countless people bearing witness, Lord, your church is what you're doing on earth. It is, it is what you are doing. You said that you will build your church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Lord, might we believe that? Lord, might we stop trying to do things our own way and, and disregard your church and disregard your fellowship? Lord, I pray for each and every one of these people here, Lord, that they would press into the body more deeply as they consider how you love the church and how you value the church, Lord, that we would value the church like you do. Lord, I pray as we go forward, I pray for our fellowship groups this afternoon. I pray that we just consider deeply the idea of, of the Trinity, Lord, this, this mystery to us that we cannot comprehend, we cannot understand fully, but yet, Lord, how important it is that we, we understand what you have revealed in Scripture to us regarding the Trinity, regarding Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would honor you, praise you accordingly. Lord, you reveal that to us. I pray for the fellowship and the unity of this church, Lord, that it would grow more and more into the image of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.